0: The ETF Edge podcast is sponsored by Invesco QQQ, supporting the innovators changing the world. Invesco Distributors, Inc.
1: Welcome to ETF Edge, the podcast. If you're looking to learn the latest insights in all things exchange-traded funds, you're in the right place. Every week, we're bringing you interviews and market analysis and breaking down what it all means for investors. I'm your host, Bob Pisani. Today on the show, coming off of Wall Street's Wildest Week of the Year, we'll discuss what to do in a down market without taking yourself out of the game entirely, whether it's momentum trading or put options. Plus, what are the latest flows telling us about the ETF landscape right now? Here's my conversation with Meb Faber, co-founder and CIO of Cambry Investments, along with Tom Leiden, global CEO of ETF Trends. Meb, thanks for joining us. Your global momentum ETF. It's one of the bigger winners in the ETF space this year, up 6%, S&P's down 14%. Tell us how this works. What does it own and how often do you rebalance?
2: Well, this fund doesn't mind being different. And as Tom Lydon, our fellow panelist, knows, I have no problem embarrassing myself. We have sung karaoke together. So, uh, this fund is meant to be an outlier in a world of funds that kind of do the same thing. So, it can go anywhere, it can do anything. It's a trend-following fund, so it looks for two things. One, what's been going up, that sounds simple enough, right? Over the past year or so, intermediate term momentum, It looks at the global opportunity set, so stocks, bonds, real estate, commodities, everything. But the key criteria is it has to be in an uptrend and long-term trend following, something like the 200-day moving average, which has been around for 100 years, right? So those two combinations sometimes can put you in a normal portfolio. In times like now, it's a big outlier. It's a lot of real assets, a lot of commodities, some residential real estate, some utilities mixed in, but a portfolio, that for this environment is unique. It's been a while since we've had this inflation, rising inflation. Typically, that is not a warm and fuzzy place for U.S. stocks or stocks in general. So it's saying right now, you want to be a little more in the real asset spectrum, which most investors, when we polled them on Twitter, have no exposure to. Yeah.
1: I want to distinguish between trend following and buying the dips. There's a a very important distinction. I want you to make that. And I I know, Meb, you did a very famous 2007 white paper uh, on this. But make that distinction for us.
2: So, you know, there's two pillars or foundation which we build portfolios. One is value. So we find value in all sorts of weird, funky places. And the other is trend. Sometimes those are sort of a yin-yang diversifiers. They look very different, uh, like today, right? So most assets are in a downtrend today, U.S. stocks, foreign stocks, most real estate, bonds even. That's pretty rare where kind of everything's going down. Commodities and real assets really the only thing going up. Now, my favorite investment is when value and trend overlap, right, a cheap investment that's in an uptrend and is also usually hated. That's not the case right now, particularly with uh, most assets in the world going down. So really, the, the, the last place to kind of hang out is uh, is in uh, many of these real assets and, and particularly the commodity patch.
1: Yeah. So, uh, Tom, uh, this seems like a very good moment here for trend following overall, right? People are confused on the fundamentals. They're confused on the technicals. Uh, so j- just stay with whatever is working, I guess, is the right thing to do. Uh, that's the nature of trend following, right? Um, Well, you're
0: exactly right, Bob. And and really what Meb's pointing out is we have a moment in time that we haven't seen for a long period. And you relate that to ETFs. Coming out of the financial crisis, we only had one-tenth of the money in ETFs that we have today. And back to Meb's paper, he wrote it in 2007. Nobody read it. But in 2009, after we had this big decline, he had 300,000 downloads after the fact. It really brings up something that's important. Technical analysis and trend following can do an important thing for investors. It can remove emotions. If you have a technical strategy and you stick to it, you don't have to stick through these very painful days or trends like this because you have a specific plan. And we know, even though a lot of people buy and hold and do asset allocation, there are a lot of folks, especially yeah. financial advisors,
1: that use trend following. But there, So let's just go back to th- this whole point about... I don't want to get in, drag in Eugene Fama and, and you know, factors, but for decades it's been known, uh, Med was mentioning value. Value is a bit of an outperformer long term, although hasn't been recently, and so is momentum even to a certain extent. Quality's another aspect. There's all of these, a small group of factors that seem to do better than the market over long periods of time. IS THERE AN IDEAL ALLOCATION FOR TREND FOLLOWING? MEB, FOR YOU TOO, IF YOU WANT TO TIME IN, BUT, I MEAN, WHAT DO YOU DO HERE? I
0: I THINK, BOB, YOU'RE HITTING ON SOMETHING KEY, AND MEB, Jump in here, but as we talk about the commodities area, we talk about inflation, we talk about declining rates, and people historically said, well, it's good to have 3 to 5% in gold. Well, gold isn't doing it for us in the commodity space right now, right. number one. And number two, a 5% allocation isn't going to help your portfolio if we continue to see high, high higher rates and we see higher inflation.
2: Yeah, so if you look at the long history of trend following, I mean, again, this goes back 100 years, back to the time of Charles Dow. Trend following is probably the ultimate diversifier to a traditional portfolio because usually it does well when everything else is hitting the fan. And this is really a key point. Like buy and hold is a fantastic investing strategy. I love buy and hold. The problem with buy and hold is that it often does poorly when everything else is doing poorly not only in your portfolio, but in your personal life. Recessions, inflation at 8%, uh, you know, huge unemployment spike up, on and on and on. And so trend following, we say, and we're the big outlier here. I don't know any investment advisor in the country that puts as much as trend following strategies as we do. Our dedicated allocation, we call it Trinity portfolios, is half in trend following. And it's funny, because you read a lot of the academic literature and the optimizers, going back to what Bob was talking about with the French Fama on the academics and even the big banks, they'll often run these optimizations and they'll say, okay, we're gonna be blind. We're gonna allocate to all these asset classes and let the optimizer decide. And they always say you should put like almost most of all your money in trend following, but then they always conclude, okay, we can't do that because that's crazy. So we're gonna max it out at like 20% or something, (laughs) right? So it's like kind of not a very honest uh, realization, but the problem with trend is it also is hard to follow like buy and hold, but it's because you look different. So for a lot of yeah. the period post-financial crisis, trends been kind of totally average. Right. You know, when, when S&P is going up 20% a year, uh, it's hard to follow. It's usually, particularly during crisis periods, when it really starts to, to shine. Now, y- y-
1: you rebalance monthly, is that right? Mm-hmm, yep. Okay, is, is there any sign this will be different a month from now? I mean, I, I know, I'm trying to force you to say something you can't say, but th- yeah. this doesn't give you a crystal ball into what the next rotation is going to look like. You're you're loaded up on commodities right now. Does that mean next month you might be loaded up on consumer staples or something like that?
2: Could be. You know, this month we made a couple changes, not a lot. We bought some utilities. Uh, we sold a couple of the value funds, stock funds, remaining stock funds we had. Um, but in general, you know, if you look at across the board on what it owns, like it's 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 not a traditional uh happy place risk on type of traditional environment we've seen from normal portfolios so um you know some of the assets are closer to downtrends than others uh but but usually what happens is it moves in pieces right you'll see a chunk of the portfolio come out and another chunk very rarely is it like a full scale moves from you know a huge allocation to nothing Um, typically the time frame we're operating on is full cycle so this is playing out over the course of quarters and years rather than days and weeks and months. So uh, speaking of trend following, you're good at following this. What are ETF flows telling
1: us? Well, First off, do you think ETF flows are a good trend indicator for anything? They, they're great. Sometimes I get confused by them <laughs> yeah. because frankly, sometimes I don't think they tell us much of anything and well, sometimes it seems rather significant. I, it's enlighten us. Flows can be emotionally
0: driven. We know that uh, the stock market can get emotional. At the same time, I think the key thing here, Bob, is most money is managed by people either advisors or people who have a lot of money. People who have a lot of money tend to be older. You and I talked about this earlier. You're, if, if Why are you're, you looking at me? <laughs> if we're a little bit longer in the tooth, we've got more of an allocation. <laughs> now you're really annoying I'm with me. You. I'm with you're you. pointing to me. and You're no, saying longer in the tooth. We're both boomers. We're both boomers. <laughs> so very sensitive. Uh, about <laughs> and, and with that in mind, you have more of a balance, maybe a 60, 40 portfolio. You, you talk to advisors they're not concerned about the volatility in the equity markets as they are as far as rising interest rates and what inflation's going to do and you look at that fixed income portion if your client is close to retired or retired right now the outlook for fixed income it's is tough.
1: pretty bleak yeah but it's i want to go back to the question yeah. i want i want to talk about this outlook yeah. uh, in in the uh, in uh, in a little bit but yeah. The trend right now, what are we seeing in terms of flows? A
0: couple of things. We have more money going into commodity-based ETFs than we do in U.S. fixed-income ETFs here today. That that alone is crazy. They're following
1: MEB around. That's what they're doing. They are.
0: And then also, as far as what little inflows we're seeing on the equity side, we're seeing huge outflows in the S&P 500-like ETFs. And why is that? It's because they're jacked up on FANG stocks or Microsoft or Tesla that are doing so poorly compared to the no. major index. And, and if you went into like an equal weight, RSP, that Invesco equal weight right. ETF, just today for the first time it went down double digits. It's only been down single digits so far year to date. Because the broad market,
1: you're talking about flows.
0: Well, we're talking about performance, but also oh, flows yeah, yeah, down, are, are, are down a little yeah. bit. Most of the outflows on the equity side are coming out of the and, and fund bond funds,
1: though. Since the beginning bond, of the year, bond
0: funds very, very small. It's it, net positive, but it's uh, less than twenty this billion dollars. This amazes me. You it's know, at, at,
1: yeah. at your conference, I mean, people were saying. 70-30 or 80-20 is the new 60-40, and we're still not seeing big outflows. No, but there's in bond a, funds.
0: there's a record amount in cash and money market funds, record amount in short duration. People are
1: taking their marbles and they're going okay, elsewhere. Okay, I want to talk about that a little greater, but you, you, uh, just speaking of flows, Kathy Wood's ARC fund, I did an interview at your conference with Kathy yeah. Wood, and she marveled at the fact that She has a very loyal following, and it's amazing to me. There was 190 million shares outstanding in April of 2021. There's still 190 million shares outstanding. This this is buying the, the dip here. People want to say, not trend investing. She's saying now, you've got to stick with me four or five years. But it's remarkable how loyal her following, down 60%. And you, still no outflows If you
0: believe in her premise, if you believe in the game plan that she's got in place, and you could buy her for 60 percent off compared to a year ago, and you've got time. Again, I'm not going to talk about the age much anymore, but my kids are in their 20s. I keep telling them, push into Kathy Wood because 5, 10, 20, 30, yeah. 40 years from now, not saying you and I don't have the time. But boy,
1: (laughs) you keep pointing at me when you say old people and don't have the time. I said you and I, come on. Okay, (laughs) sure. Not that I'm sensitive about this. Meb, Cambria, changing the subject, has several other funds for investors who want alternatives out there. Um, You have a tail risk ETF. It it holds cash and treasuries and put options. This is kind of an unusual choice, but tell us about this.
2: Yeah, so, you know, when we launch funds, we want funds, we say there's 10,000 funds out there. You guys talk about a lot of them. I always say... Why do we need any more funds? And so we only launch funds that either don't exist or we think we can do much better, much cheaper and better, obviously subjective, but all of our funds are cheaper in the category average. And in this case, we've launched two tail risk funds. So there's tail and fail. The tail is the US, fail is the foreign. But we looked around the category and we said, there's not a way to express this trade that we want to do um, that's out there currently. So we wrote a white paper we, uh, we then launched this fund, and the concept is simple. Uh, if you want to be able to hedge a part of your portfolio, um, how would you possibly design it? And the long history, and we did this white paper, when stocks do very poorly, uh, you know, the, the more vernacular, when they barf, when they puke, when they really go down bad in a given day, a given month, or even a bear market, what helps? Well, all the things you expect not to help, like look at today, don't help. Historically, foreign stocks don't help. Real estate doesn't help. Gold is like your crazy neighbor. Helps sometimes, maybe not. Um, commodities, on average, don't help. Bonds help sometimes, right? But the better part of the first part of the century, uh, the 20th century, they didn't really help during the bad times. Everyone expects them to help today, but they but they may or may not. But on average, they've helped. And so what else has helped? Trend following has helped. But, but tail risk, you can't say guaranteed in our world, but it's almost guaranteed to help by buying puts, okay? So what we do in this fund, 90% hangs out in the 10-year treasury, and the rest we buy our ladder puts on the stock market. The goal is to try to, over a really bad day, month, bear market, get about a one to negative one exposure to U.S. stocks. And it's done a very good job of that. Uh, but the key for all these tail risk type of strategies, you look at them over time, they just kind of, it's like a life insurance yeah. policy, right? It just lose money, loses money, right um, and then does well. So the the trying to lose less money in the bad times, which is right. where a lot of the other funds struggle.
1: Well, that's the problem I have with this, Tom. It's a it's a money loser over time. I mean, you've got cash and bonds. Cash is gonna deteriorate, and bonds are already deteriorating, and they're buying puts to get a little, to prevent you from losing too much over time. It's a yeah.
0: tough well, argument. Well, when you look at trend following, and, 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 and you can put a 200-day day average on this ETF, and over time, if you have an um, equity market that looks expensive, and bonds are flat, and the prospect for bonds are flat, this is a great way to hedge. And most people, you know, again, rather than going short or inverse and in leverage, that I'm not going to get you started on that, Bob. Please. But, but it, it's one of those things where it's another option, it's another choice. And there's a lot of good education that goes in that.
1: Meb, you, you've got a, a more traditional yield ETF that I can understand a little easier, SYLD. It looks for stocks with attractive cash flows. Uh, tell us a little bit about this. I, I have a board of what's in it, too. I'll get you to comment on that.
2: Yeah, you know, it's funny, you guys listen, listeners probably are like, Meb's a perma perma bear or something. Um, and that's not remotely true. You know, I, I just think right now, if you look at U.S. stocks, they're expensive, some of the most expensive they've ever been, and they're in a downtrend. And historically, that is produced about 0% returns. So on a valuation level alone, we're expecting zero real returns on U.S. stocks for the next decade. That's market cap weighted, however. So what can you do within U.S. stocks? Our largest fund is this U.S. stock fund. Um, And it's very Buffett-esque sort of strategy. It's looking for great companies that generate a lot of cash flow, that are trading for cheap valuations, and the CEOs are behaving by uh, returning cash to shareholders through dividends or net buybacks. You can take this strategy back-tested back to the 1920s, um, and it outperforms basically almost any traditional value dividend strategy over time. It's a very sensible strategy. We run it in U.S., foreign, and emerging. They've all done well. But some of the characteristics right now, you can pull it up on Morningstar, CBC, wherever, and look at the actual x-ray of the holdings. You know, value for a better part of my career when we launched ETFs in 2013 has been out of favor. You alluded to that in the beginning, that something changed in 2020, whether it was the election, interest rates bottoming near zero, or um the pandemic bottom you know value had one of its worst years in history uh in 2019 and then following i think it was 2020 2021 it's really rebounded right. um but if you look at the spread like, it's barely even moved off the bottom. It hasn't condensed at all. And so I think you have this opportunity that could last for years. Yeah. Um, you know, days like today, it, it may it may, uh, it may clear up by the end but of the year. Not, I don't the, know. The but.
1: SYLD is not necessarily value stocks. I mean, I'm looking at, at these. It's it's attractive cash flows. Uh, I'm looking at top holdings. Dillard's, Nucor, Mosaic, Louisiana Pacific, Steel Dynamics. I don't know. I guess you would call them value. Uh, I don't know. If yeah course part, part of the screen is
2: we use a we use a value ensemble so the very traditional value factors that fama would love at the beginning when we talk about value all that really matters it doesn't have to be that specific is that are you using value at all because the opposite everyone all loves to talk about value stocks and we love them but it's not just that you're buying the cheap stuff it's also that you're avoiding the really expensive. And let's be honest, the last two years, my God, some of the craziness we've seen in markets and some of these stocks, like 10 times revenue used to be the ceiling, it then became the floor in <laughs> a lot of these stocks. And so you have both sides to it. You have, you're hanging out the cheap stuff, but it's also that you're avoiding the really expensive. Before we let you go, uh,
0: just one quick thing. If, if you were to pick right now, where's the best value around the world?
2: This is, this is unpopular. Uh, this this is why value works, is because the U.S. is a long-term P.E. ratio, CAPE ratio, Shiller Bay, about 32. It was 40 last year. Um, Foreign-developed, totally reasonable, around 20. Foreign-emerging, uh, this is my pick, close your eyes, uh, hold your nose, stinky opportunity, emerging value over the next decade uh, on a pure compounding basis, I think, is the place to really be. A lot of these countries are now in single-digit P.E. ratios. historically got everything going for them, de- demographics, uh, you got uh, super cheap companies and they get a kicker from uh, a lot of the commodity trade as well. And they have a tough time in a rising
1: interest rate environment, really emerging tough. market, Really, <laughs> really tough. tough, thank you for saying really yeah, yeah. tough. I felt like saying, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey. But that's why we like Meb, because he comes on. Yeah. And these that's why they're cheap, place. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That is why they're cheap. Now it's time to round out the conversation with some analysis and perspective to help you better understand ETFs. This is the Markets 102 portion of the podcast. Today, we'll be continuing the conversation with Tom Leiden from ETF Trends, cut off of the great ETF conference, which you put on uh, less than a month ago, which I really enjoyed attending. Uh, I got a chance to talk to some of the RIAs there, the registered independent advisors, but you're the expert on this. What did they tell you? What are they worried about right now?
0: What's interesting, Bob, even though we're seeing all this volatility in equities, most advisors are managing money for people who have money. So they're close to retirement or in retirement. So there's a big chunk of their allocation that historically has been on the fixed income side. They're scared to death about rising interest rates, and they're scared to death of inflation. There are also concerns, secondarily, about geopolitical risk and what that might mean to making that trend continue over an extended period of time. Their third concern is market volatility, but not as much. Because when you think about their clients, who safety and income and getting a regular income stream is their top priority yeah. right now. And that's, that's the big concern yeah. right
1: now. To, when you think about it to a certain extent, investment advisors, I and mean, RIAs in particular, are active managers. They might have ETFs, but their allocation and where they move it around is their decision. They might even buy uh, a portfolio of ETF strategies, but even that is an, a tactical allocation decision on their part. It, They've it got is. to be scared to death with 60-40, because I kept hearing 80-20 was the new 60-40 <laughs> at, this, at this conference. People couldn't seem to decide. Right. Jeff Gunlock was you know, telling people commodities, uh, uh, long-term treasuries, and, and cash, and a small uh, stock allocation.
0: What you're pointing out is there's more money in motion than we've seen in the ETF space. That's it. For- right. Ever. Coming out of the financial crisis, if you were a financial advisor and you did a 60 40 allocation to, let's just say, the World Stock Market Index and the Bloomberg Barclays AG, you did 60 40, you would have killed it up until recently. So now, after 30 years of declining interest rates, having to face inflation and rising interest rates for the average advisor, it's a huge conundrum. And they don't have faith that the Fed is going to tackle this head-on. Yeah. They've, they've been very, very slow to to the punch. So we just had Med Faber on. Uh,
1: his Momentum ETF is essentially a commodity fund at this point, uh, because they're following momentum, obviously. Um, is it too late to have the commodities, uh, to play commodities at this point? We, we I know you did some webcasts recently with our, our mutual friend Jan Von Eck, who's a master at commodities. Is it well, too late, or are we all piling in after the barn doors closed?
0: We had the commodities team on from Van Eck for a webcast and Invesco. Both teams feel like we're in the early innings. We might be in the third or fourth inning. If you look back to the late 70s, early 80s, there was a five-year period where we saw really hard inflation. And the crazy thing is, Bob, how they measured inflation back Mm -hmm. then to compare how they measure that today is different. If we use the same measurement the numbers would be even that much more scary. So that's really the thing. Fed is signaling, oh, we've got this under control and it's gonna go away. And now, most recently, well, we're gonna have to do more to address it. What if this is going on for another five years where we get five to 7% inflation? What's that gonna do for rates? What's that gonna do for
1: purchasing power? I I doubt it's going to go on five to seven years. I think we'll we'll eventually, there'll be demand destruction this summer that will eventually slow inflation down. The problem we're all dealing with here is how do you call a bottom and what do you look for at a bottom? And maybe you get these false bottoms. Remember, do you remember November 2008 where we were down 50%? I think we were hit high in October 2007 and we were down 50%. And all of a sudden, all these technical indicators indicated we were bottom. But it wasn't. it wasn't. The market rallied into December and then went down another 25% or something like that through March 2009. And that was the bottom. We didn't even know what was going to happen then, but that was the bottom. And people were trying to buy in December as it was rallying, then got clobbered going down, and then they were selling at the bottom in a big way to so people just massively selling they couldn't take. It was a <laughs> disaster. I remember being so depressed about it, watching because, people they, sell. Because right, if you're going to be down 50 or whatever it was down, you're not going to sell down 54%. That's just not a rational
0: So that capitulation we have yet to see here, and hopefully it's not going to be that painful. But the other important thing is commodities and inflation is based on supply and demand. So if you look at global agriculture, global energy, real estate, and even the job market with this great resignation, if people want to do something else, I want to do something from home, but people are telling you to come back to the office and I don't want to, I can change jobs and I can get a job where I can work from home and actually make more money. All these shifts really need to happen. Um, and the only thing that people have been invested in in the past to protect from uh, uh, inflation is gold. And gold has been the worst performing commodity yeah. because there's not a heck of a lot demand on so there's concerns about um, food shortages in countries over in Europe and in Asia right now. If those things start to kick in, we could see this inflationary thing get really ugly.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. And that's why I'm hesitant to, you know, you want to look for science. You know, 200-day moving average, you know, 35 percent of the S&P 500 is, uh, you know, it. 52-week lows. And there, there are numbers that are indicators, technical indicators that are very high now. So you, people are tempted to say, well, geez, start buying here if, you know, if so, you're know, you a, a trader type.
0: So when, in fact, all of this could be wrong. Yeah,
1: in a market like this, that could be all fa- false indicators. Which goes to the point about why you're not staying long-term buy and hold. I go back to my Jack Bogle roots. If you're actually going to be sitting there, and, you, and unless you need the money in the next year, when obviously you shouldn't be in stocks, I, I'm, I still go back to the Jack Bogle principles. Right.
0: Well, there's an. Emo- Jack Bogle was great because he removed the emotion. He just said, "Lean in, just continue to buy over time." Right now, we have an emotional period of time, and if you're questioning whether you missed this inflationary trend, and let's just say it's still in the early innings, by following a trend like MEBS ETF, the Momentum ETF, it does the right thing for you mm-hmm. on a on a 200-day average. The other thing is, if you want to do that yourself, throw a 200-day average on PDBC, which is the uh, Invesco Commodities ETF, and as long as you buy it now with a 10 percent allocation and you sell it when it goes below its 200-day average, you're not going to kill yourself in buying at the top and not know when no, to sell. That's a good point. I think technical analysis really works.
1: Yeah, In this kind of situation, yeah. it does. OK. Tom Leiden, of course outruns uh, ETF Trends, and uh, just c- completed a very successful ETF conference. Tom, thank you for joining us. and Everybody, thank you for listening to the ETF Edge podcast.
0: Invesco QQQ believes new innovations create new opportunities. Become an agent of innovation. Invesco QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc.